Everybody ready? Yeah. UW? Yeah. UW's ready. So a couple of housekeeping things. Um, if you haven't signed up to be experts, this is the equivalent of the midterm. So we will be sending you email nasty grams, but really logically it's in your interest to stay ahead of us and get signed up if you haven't done that already. The other thing is that some of you who obsessively come to our site will have noticed that the term project description is up. Uh, term projects will be due on the evening of the last class at midnight. That's the hacker ethic, I guess. Um, but take a look at it, and if you have questions, uh, you know, email us, uh, and we'll work out the logistics. The one question that's already been asked, which is asked every year, is how do you pair up in groups? And of course, the obvious thing is the old analog way. You can pair up with people in your respective campuses. But if you have a topic on our list or a topic that you invented that doesn't uh, find anyone else in your classroom who's interested, um, send it to our uh, teaching assistant, Kate Dival. I hope I've got that right. And uh, she'll try and pair you up with people on other campuses. And it's actually been a really good experience in other years to do these virtual team projects across campuses because you end up with people from wildly different backgrounds and that could be a disaster but more often it's been the opposite that that everybody learns from everybody else and uh, the learning experience is as advertised so maybe this is the year you proved me wrong but so far so good if you have a topic and you can't find a friend to do it with at one of the campuses um, we'll play clearinghouse for you and, and get like-minded people together. And by the way, I don't think Ed's here tonight, but uh, Ed would always say at this point that if you don't find a topic and pair up on your own, the last thing that happens is shotgun marriages, and that's really <laughs> ugly and reliably Steve? ugly, I promise. Yeah. Steve, we have Art, uh, James Sorry? Camera shots to sign up on the key. Let's, uh, we'll send around an email about logistics. Okay, so I also um, want to do any. We're going to do antitrust tonight because the legal system intrudes itself into everything. Um, and Sir, just an AV. We AV, can't see you. Just an AV request to change the camera shot. Great. Thank you. <laughs> I was tired of looking at me. It was kind of a good thing. Um, anyway, so um, we're going to talk about antitrust tonight, and what I'd like to do is. This is a subject where there's a lot to say, and I could get incomprehensible. If I get incomprehensible, stop me. But what I want to do is an experiment, and I'm going to promise to between 9.10 and 9.15 to just stop. And we'll get more value, I'm hoping, out of our experts who've been reading a lot of this material and have comments of their own. So I want to reserve some time for discussion. So the comprehension is important, but if you have a question that we can do at the end, let's make that part of the discussion. You be the editor on which of those things it is. Okay, so very quickly, an introduction. Um, this is obviously a little bit different history, and the problem with legal history is that, you know, history is normally about narratives, new things following other new things changing over time. And the sort of depressing part about legal history, which you will figure out tonight, is that we have some 400-year-old problems that maybe we appreciate better, but we still haven't solved them. And the complaints that judges make aren't all that different from the ones you know, that you can find historically 30 and 40 and 50 years ago. Some of these problems are just hard. They're not going to get worked out. Um, and that makes the history a little bit unsatisfying, but I hope if you sort of squint the lecture, you'll see that there really are is progress and things that courts figure out. And slowly, slowly, uh, some of these problems are getting resolved. 
Uh, the other thing I want to do is a little quick commercial. Uh, most of this course is, a, as it's taught at Berkeley, is a commercial from me to the public policy students saying, you know, it's self-limiting um, not to, to, to persuade yourself that you can understand stuff about computers and you should come to this with that attitude and you just, you know, are a less effective person if you go through life believing that you can't understand stuff because really believing that you can't understand stuff is usually much more important than whether you actually could or not, right? Believing you can't understand it is always a successful prediction. And I want to encourage uh, people in the tech communities for this course to uh, read the, the uh, case and read the readings because you don't want to go through life uh, afraid that you really couldn't understand legal stuff. Uh, you can read it, and particularly after tonight's lecture, you can read it, and you'll have a sense of how courts operate and how they think and how these decisions get made. And I think basically you'll get sort of a positive feeling that the work is done by honest people who are trying to work things out openly and honestly, and it's not all a dark conspiracy. But getting in touch with the process, this is a process that exists solely on paper. That's what the law is. And reading some of those original uh, materials in your life is just a really useful thing to do to get a sense of that chunk of our society. Uh, it gets rid of a lot of sort of nervousness that there's a black art or a priesthood. Uh, you really want to get to a place where maybe you don't know how to do the law, but if you thought about it for a while, you're sure you could. That's a good kind of confidence to have, and I encourage you to read the readings. Okay, so tonight's uh, project is I want to say a little bit about how lawyers see the world. Um, the usual way that people talk about the Microsoft case is they say, well, Microsoft did this and that and the other, and then these results happened. The court punished them. Well, first of all, sort of the things that Microsoft is said to have done many times don't even appear in the opinion. And if it doesn't appear in the opinion, it's from a legal standpoint not a fact at all. Uh, but more importantly, you know, we have, it's not that the courts don't sort of look at people doing stuff and then punish them. We have laws and rules and guidelines that businesses rely on. And if you sort of abstract away this middle layer, of what rules do we have, what understandings have we given about which acts are legal and which aren't, you lose most of the understanding and appreciation of what happened in the case. So we'll talk a little bit about the way that lawyers look at the world, which oddly enough, maybe I'm the only person who claims this, looks a lot like flowcharts in the way that computer scientists think about the world, but I'll leave that up to you. Then we'll talk about early antitrust law, and in this case early means everything in the physical economy because that's where these ideas were first developed. And finally we'll come to the place which is the heart of the lecture, um, which is we take these concepts that are developer smokestack industries and we ask ourselves how do they work in the physical, in the, in the information economy. And the information economy, as we've been hearing in all these lectures, is sufficiently different from our everyday experience. You have these dynamics of new standards that arise and suddenly everybody's building a particular kind of machine. Um, you know, that our intuitions from the physical economy are treacherous and the courts are terrified of this and we'll try and use this early wedge of cases about trying to apply antitrust to the information economy to get clues about the issues that frankly I suspect will be hashed out in courts for the rest of all of our lives. Uh, it took a hundred odd years to get the physical economy right in antitrust and the fact is they're still working on that. Um, this is the beginning of a long process but we have a number of thoughtful opinions and by looking at them you can kind of see what the themes are and what the courts offer is on how they're going to wrestle with this stuff. So this is my cartoon of how lawyers see the world. This is basically what they spend months feeding into you in law school. The first question is, is, it, is this, I come to the court with a complaint, I sue somebody, 
first thing is the court says, subject matter jurisdiction. What does that mean? If everything that Maurer is claiming was true, would this be the kind of thing that courts give relief on? So if I sue you for defamation and my complaint reads, he burned down my house, the court will say, that's not defamatory. Even if all of this was true, you've got the wrong theory here. Maybe you have a suit for arson. Come back and file that. But is this the kind of thing that we want to be dealing with? The second thing, the one that you mostly think about, that young lawyers in particular focus on, is liability. If the law is exactly as Maurer reads it, and if the facts are as he pleads it, and a jury so finds, then the defendant, the guy that Maurer is suing, would be liable under the antitrust laws, say. And, you know, young lawyers love this because, ooh, I got a judgment against the defendant, but one of the things you're going to learn tonight is that, gee, that's great, but maybe we don't know what relief to give you, damages or whatever. Is that going to fix it? And in antitrust, there's a real problem that a lot of the relief that courts are able to give is sort of irrelevant, and that's going to be a recurring issue tonight. And also, I've gone a little bit out of order. Relief is down here, but there's a middle step. Even if you did everything that the law says is wrong, nevertheless, you may have defenses. Yes, but I did it for a justifiable reason. Yes, but Maurer consented in advance. The law has a bin of even-if arguments that defendants can make to say, yes, I did all these things that would make me liable, but I have a defense. And all of this gets hashed out in order, and the reason that I think for this audience it's second nature, but in law school it's very tough, is people are forever trying to blend everything together, right? But what lawyers actually do is they break this down into seriatim elements. Don't talk to me about damages while I'm thinking about liability. We work this through step by step, and if you go through all the gates successfully as a plaintiff, you finally get to this point where you win. So that's all very mechanical, very enlightenment, very analytical tradition, but that's how lawyers like to formalize these distinctions. We're going to go through this carefully step by step, and at each step we'll ask, you know, has this behavior qualified to make the defendant liable, or what damages can we award? And another way of saying that is that Anglo-American law has this big emphasis on so-called common law. We don't like the legal system to have a new rule every time somebody shows up in court, right? We'd like the law to be predictable, and the way we do that is that judges in new cases look at old cases and say, I want to do something that's consistent that was done before. And sometimes they may say that the old cases are crazy and it's just time to start over. The British government doesn't do that. The House of Lords has to clean up clearly idiotic rules. They don't let the courts do it. But American judges have a little flexibility, but the point is they try to decide cases in a way that's consistent with earlier cases, and because everybody knows they do that, the law is predictable. And when Microsoft wants to know if they can legally do some new business practice, their lawyers go read all the old cases in the faith, and it's a pretty reasonable faith that modern next-generation judges aren't just going to make it up as they go along. They'll try and do something that's consistent with the law as it exists, as it's been handed down from earlier judges, and that's obviously an iterative process. Okay, so this is an old subject, and what's very interesting, at least to a lawyer, is that patents and antitrust are born side by side. The Middle Ages was big on monopoly, 
And so what would happen is the local lord of the manor would have a beer monopoly. Nobody else can make beer, and he would have that right. And, of course, you know what the price of beer is going to be in the village if there's only one person who can make beer. And monopoly was intimate. You know, in the 20th century, monopolists are remote. People don't have a good sense of what monopoly is. They just see that prices are high. In an intimate village of a couple hundred people and only one guy is allowed to make beer, you know what monopoly is. It's an artificial scarcity. I could perfectly well set up my own beer operation, but the bailiff will come and beat me over the head with a stick. People understand the cruelty of an artificial monopoly in these medieval settings, I think, much better than modern people do because it's so intimate. And there's a backlash at the, in the Renaissance, and people say, we're not going to do business this way anymore. The king doesn't get to hand out monopolies to reward his cronies, except for new inventions. And so what you have is, simultaneously, most monopolies become illegal, and one set of monopolies gets to be legal. And that's kind of elegant, because what happens is that, look, if I have a patent on a new invention, what's the most reward I can ever get? What willing consumers are able to pay, are willing to pay me for my invention. So there's this sense that, you know, if I'm a crony of the king, I get a beer monopoly, maybe that's a giant over-reward. Patents, by contrast, are at least honest, because what happens is I can never make more money with my invention than what it's worth to people to buy it. So that's the line that's drawn. But way back when, um, the British didn't know how to exactly draw this line between IP and monopoly. What's an illegal monopoly and what's a lawful patent monopoly? And notice that if you stray across the line, if you use your patent reward a little bit too vigorously, suddenly you're an antitrust violator. And that's different than most laws. You know, if the taxes, uh, if you get a tax rebate for doing some good thing and you don't quite qualify, they don't throw you in jail. Patents and monopoly are cheek by jowl. There's no intervening gray area of stuff that the law is indifferent to. And so you have this horrible boundary. How do you untangle patents, which are a lawful monopoly, from monopolies with illegal monopolies, which are normally throw people in jail for? In the 19th century, economists come up with a very pretty picture of this instinct about how we don't like uh, uh, patents and why. And most of the language of patent law is based on microeconomics. Judges channel now the standard way that economists talk about this subject. It's the only place I know in the law where academics have this much sway. And, you know, if you want, we can talk about sort of the formal view of this during the break. But the point is, um, it's largely a theoretical microeconomic story. Not entirely. Pat the, the Sherman Act it codifies monopoly law in the United States in 1890. And it is at the beginning of the progressive era where we hate big corporations and the rich guys back east. And there's a big theme of that which continues to sometimes push court decisions. So it's not just that the academics have their own way. There's a populist urge that people shouldn't get too big for their britches. But in general, um, the way I will talk about it, the way most people talk about it, and what matters, the way the Supreme Court tends to talk about it, is very much in this term of what's economically efficient. Okay. This is the actual text of the Sherman Act. And, you know, if this were a law school course, we would spend all sorts of time noticing things, like, for example, <coughs> Section 1 of the Sherman Act says that every contract combination uh, or conspiracy and restraint of trade is illegal, and you 
beat on the students until they notice that, gee, you need a contract, a combination, or a conspiracy. That means you can't have just one violator for Section 1. There's got to be two people to agree, two to tango. We're not going to beat on these statutes to bring all that out, except that I want to point out one thing, which is that the Sherman Act talks about any agreement in restraint of trade. Now, this is a long, complicated sentence. You listen to it, it sounds like it's saying something, but an ordinary contract restrains trade. If you promise to sell me eggs in the morning, you can't sell them to somebody else. It's a restraint of trade. Does that violate the Sherman Act? And the problem is that that sounds ridiculous. Maybe it is, but for a good 20 years, courts couldn't figure out exactly what Congress wanted them to do, because let's be honest, Congress didn't know what Congress wanted them to do. It just wrote this injunction to go out and write uh, an antitrust law. And the courts took a long time sorting that out, but they finally did do that. And what I'm pointing out is there's an old joke that the Americans, like the British, have an unwritten constitution. Well, the Sherman Act is sort of an unwritten antitrust law. An awful lot of this is made up by judges, and John Sherman in 1890 knew darn well that would happen. So Section 1 talks about contracts and restraint of trade, and the second act, the Section 2, talks about you can't monopolize. So that means you can't use bad behavior to go out and get yourself power over the market, become an 80 or 90 percent guy in the market. And we'll talk more about that later, but these are the two main textual bases for the Sherman Act. They added some before the First World War. Okay, so there's this evolution. And for a long time, railroad companies stand up and say things like, you don't understand, in our business, if we can't fix prices, we'll go extinct, which is perilously close to an argument that Congress got the statute wrong, and for goodness sake, you know, just ignore it, right? But that law kind of goes on for a long time, and finally, in 1911, they break up Standard Oil, and the Supreme Court of the United States says, what the Sherman Act really means is something called rule of reason. And rule of reason means, look, a little contract to sell eggs, that doesn't hurt the market. If you can't make contracts, there is no market. And so that net helps the market. You have to reach a judgment that net, the challenge practice, is good for the market. And that's the root of all Sherman Act stuff ever since. Um, but that's a really hard inquiry, right? You have to do economics every time from scratch. And so after a while, the court starts noticing that certain kinds of transactions are ever and always violations of the Sherman Act. The court listens to a hundred different cases. In each one of them, two guys met on the street corner and agreed to fix prices. The court listens to all of them. In each and every one, they've got an excuse. In each and every one, the excuse is ridiculous. And the court finally says, enough. The 101st guy, I don't want to hear this, that, you know, yeah, we agreed to fix prices, but I got a defense. You don't got a defense. We're pretty sure you don't have a defense. So what you're going to do now is we're just going to assume that if I can prove you fixed prices, I don't want to hear the rest of it. That's a per se violation. We can get past the rule of reason. And as an old practicing lawyer, what you want to do is a short way home. Sherman Act cases to work out the market and all these subtle economic inquiries and to find out everything the business did over the last 15 years is a nightmare. It takes decades. I mean, these are the most complex cases you can have. And so what you want is to always get the short way home. Ooh, is there a way I can find a per se rule in this mess? Because then we won't argue about it. I'll just argue that he's under a per se rule. That's the structure of Sherman Act litigation. As I say, 
courts are almost coming up on their first century of figuring out what all this means. Um, they've made a lot of progress, but that's the old economy, and we're moving into the new one. Some of the history we talked about last time, Department of Justice doesn't like the fact that IBM and Remington Rand in the 30s get together to say business ethics, leasing is the only moral way to do computing. The Department of Justice looks at that and says maybe it's true, but this sounds perilously like something that locks in you two in a monopoly. Um, knock it off. And eventually that doesn't go to court, they just agree we'll change it. And that's what happens. Um, in the 1940s, this line between intellectual property and antitrust gets pushed hard. Roosevelt comes into office. He has a depression on his hands. What's the <coughs> symptom of the depression? Low output. What's the symptom of monopoly? Low output. Maybe that's why we have the depression. In 37, he hires 200 lawyers, count them, 200, to go to the Justice Department to do nothing but cut back on the strength of the patent monopoly to, to ensure that almost anything you can do with a patent is illegal. And all the seven or eight Supreme Court cases that lawyers are taught in law school about the interaction between patents and antitrust come from the 1940s, not an accident. It's those 200 government lawyers hard at work. Um, so, 1950s, we talked about this. Department of Justice opens up uh, IBM, tells them that you have to let other people make uh, punch cards, you let people service machines, you let people, you let your patents license to other people provided they license their patents back to you. Um, again, it's a settled case. It doesn't go to court, but that's the Justice Department trying to bring antitrust principles into the information business, prehistory of this subject. In the 1960s, the law is still evolving. Some of the top questions, if you were a lawyer in those days, it's always been true that business practices that a humble 1% shareholder could do are, are um, I mean, 1% share of market shareholder could do are legal for that person. But if a 60% market shareholder tries to do those same things, it's an antitrust violation. It's keeping your monopoly by unfair, sharp elbows kinds of tactics. And in the 1960s, it looked briefly like if you were a monopolist, anything you did, no matter how small, would be considered an antitrust violation. And that actually is part of what encourages the government to go after IBM. The law looks really favorable in the 1960s. That changes, of course. There are lots of early cases about standards. Standards are important in the physical world. And the courts get to, to decide things like, you know, whatever else is true, if you bribe the standard-setting body to pick your standard over a competitor, that's an antitrust violation. And the courts try to invent new per se rules, including one called tying, which becomes an unutterable mess in the information economy. We'll come to that. So, I hope you read that, uh, the letter from the IBM case, but in 1969, the Justice Department sues IBM, and of course the Microsoft cases follow, and that's the bulk of the rest of the lecture. IBM. So we've already had this about the System 360, but but the point about the System 360 is it was plug compatible, and you had all these peripherals that were also developed originally by IBM that worked with the CPU. And the idea that IBM had was this is great because I can sell new peripherals uh, every year and eventually the guy will buy a new CPU too, but I don't have to wait to sell him a new machine. I can sell him piecemeal every year and upgrade him continually and this is good for our business. 
On the other hand, um, other people can make this stuff. And in particular, disk drives and tape drives um, start to be made very efficiently by other non-IBM companies in the 1960s, and they make them better quality and cheaper than IBM. And, you know, IBM's still got a good business net, but they have kind of sharp elbows and they worry about this. So what they do is they create first a task force for the IBM 370. Remember, that's the 1970 version of the 360. And they move around the interfaces. So the controller for the disk drive is now inside the CPU. That'll screw up these competitors with their plug-compatible equipment. And they move that around. And then they do another tactic, which is, look, they monopolize the CPU. So they can charge any price they want for that. In particular, they can raise the price of the CPU and lower the price of tape drives. That'll fix the competition. So they play games like that. And in 1971, they still have this problem. So they start using their, their, this game with raising the price of the CPU to uh, offer cheap leases to people if they agree to, to stick with IBM. And I love this. I spent much of my life as a lawyer telling business people not to do things like this, right? Why on earth would you form an internal IBM committee called the Smash Committee to think about <laughs> any of those violations, right? And you guys laugh, but I tell you, you do this till you turn blue in the face. There's always somebody writing really macho memos, which tells me as a social scientist that somewhere in the organization, there's someone who enjoys reading macho memos and rewards them. But I never found that person. Okay. Reality check. What you would normally believe as an economist in this subject is, look, IBM sells CPUs plus peripherals. And IBM has a monopoly on CPUs, and the best thing that IBM could do is to have the other stuff as cheap as possible and as good as possible. You want, if there are two things, complements in the jargon, if there are two complements, you want the, the, the one that you don't produce to be sold as cheaply and efficiently and beautifully as possible because it makes the thing you have a monopoly over more valuable. Why didn't IBM do that? Well, the story is, is probably a true story, that they thought if guys made tape drives, eventually they'd make CPUs. And we sort of told a story in the first couple of lectures about this, that this is a business that has a lot of internal financing. And if you let somebody make substantial money in one part of the industry, he'd never be able to go out and get bank credit to enter the CPU business. But by golly, you know, if he makes the money internally, he might invest in threatening your CPU monopoly. Okay. So there's this lawsuit, and the first thing you should notice is that it's filed, I don't know what it says in the, in the readings, but something like January 19th, 1969. I don't know the exact date because I don't know when Nixon was inaugurated, but it's the day before Nixon is inaugurated. What does this tell you? It tells you that LBJ didn't know what to do with this suit, but he was darn glad to stick it to the Republicans because, you know, the Republicans would have this thing around their neck, and they would be the people who dropped the suit later on, right, if, if it couldn't be brought to a successful conclusion. It's a startling thing, right, that, the, that Kennedy and Johnson were in the White House for eight years, but, right, neither of them wanted to bring a suit against IBM. They knew it would be a mess, so it was kind of cool to leave it for the Republicans. All right. So you read this, this memo by Abbott Lipsky, and by the way, it's a beautiful memo. I think it's very honest. 
It's very insightful, and most importantly, it teaches you how to write memos. It's a beautiful piece of work <laughs> where he explains why the Republicans finally, under Reagan, want to get out of the IBM lawsuit business. And it's worth reading in and of itself, but the thing to, to really point out is that Lipsky says, I don't know what to do with relief. So young lawyers like to get liability. Prove this guy is guilty, right? That's what everybody goes into law school wanting to do. But he's guilty and he has no money, right? This is a bad outcome for your client, $100,000 legal fees later. So the young lawyers forget about relief, but Lipsky isn't a young lawyer. He understands about relief. And what he points out is, well, when the government went into it, um, the government has some damages. I, U.S. bought IBM equipment, but they're not large. The government might have brought a criminal suit against IBM and fined the company or even thrown people in jail. They did that in the 1950s in a big way in the United States. It's not so long ago. But the choices that are actually before the government to pursue are they could get an injunction against IBM. I tell you not to do bad things. But you know, injunctions have criminal penalties, and to violate them, you know, you go to jail, which means that constitutionally they have to be very, very specific. I have to tell you exactly what is wrong, because otherwise I'm just being arbitrary, throwing you in jail and you have constitutional protections against that. And so if you're serious about an injunction, it has to be very specific, and that means that since none of us can predict the future, it almost never applies five years from now because the market has changed and the business has changed and who knows. It's very hard to write those injunctions. Structural relief, we could break IBM up. It's a real successful company and a big innovator. You've got to swallow hard before you do that. But more importantly, you don't have the option because, frankly, the case against IBM isn't that strong. So they could prosecute it and they could get some relief, but it probably wouldn't be structural. And even if you could, uh, gee, do you want to break up this this engine of innovation, because IBM has almost as many Nobel Prizes as that other notable monopolist, AT&T, and you have to worry about breaking things up like that arbitrarily. And finally, you could chase IBM and get the, the case because there will be a court opinion at the end of it, and that will tell everybody else how to straighten up and fly right, and to Lipsky that seems kind of marginal, uh, given that the Justice Department is forever announcing its view of the law anyway. And that's why he drops the case. And, you know, before you feel too bad about it, this is a really fundamental question, because it asks basically, is the whole inquiry futile? And one thing you could point out is, look, the, the first thing to say about antitrust is if you believe that the market unseats monopolists on average every five years, and antitrust cases take on average seven years, you're in a bad business. Um, and beyond that, antitrust cases are very expensive. The visible cost is the hundreds of lawyers on both sides for IBM, all eating at good restaurants throughout the 1970s. But that's only the visible part. The real cost is that IBM can't do anything without asking its lawyers, will this make the government's antitrust case against me stronger? And that kind of paralysis in a business for a decade and more you know, is grossly inefficient because, of course, it's not just that when IBM has a dark thought, it asks its lawyers. When it wants to do its regular business stuff, it asks its lawyers too. And you have to worry about building that into the economy. And, of course, what Lipsky points out is the laws change. Gee, it looked really good pursuing IBM in the late 60s. By the early 80s, much of that has evaporated. All right. So, that's the IBM case. Um, the government just drops the suit. Reagan catches a lot of flack for it. Um, but unless you have sort of a good offer on what the relief should have been, maybe Lipsky's right. Anyway, you owe it to yourself to read it and, and, and think about that. <coughs> so the 
Yeah, sure. So there is one piece of the IBM memo that's something along the lines of most of the complaints had to do with things that weren't IBM's core business. It almost sounds like giving large companies a blank check to play dirty in markets they're not thinking yet. Can you talk about that, or am I talking too broad? No. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to think about that. The legal answer is that IBM is less able to monopolize markets where it has small share. It has a lot of money behind it, but they are less of a threat there. And so in that sense, it's consistent. But I think if I remember that correctly, that piece is more about what our legal leverage on IBM is than what we would like the result to be. And the focus is really on what relief can I grant. It's not that they wouldn't like to regulate IBM in these small markets, but legally that becomes even harder, right, because the standard is how big is this gorilla relative to the actions that he took. Okay. So the next thing that comes along, of course, is the Microsoft cases. Most of this slide is preamble. There is an early case by the government against Microsoft that they don't like the developer agreements and the licensing agreements that Microsoft has made, and the idea is that this is to entrench Microsoft and exclude other developers. And this ends in something called a consent decree. The government never tries the case. Microsoft never defends it. Instead, the parties just agree, settle, right, and they take the settlement to a judge who then writes what they ask. Please write the following judgment to memorialize our settlement. And he does this, and Microsoft 1 ends in a consent decree that says that certain kinds of licensing and software developer agreements are illegal and Microsoft won't do them. Now, there's a problem with that, and the problem is this is an injunction. It's an order to Microsoft not to do stuff, and the world changes. And so Microsoft starts, in the sort of plaintiff's lawyer jargon, bundling its Internet Explorer with its operating system. Its competitors cry bloody murder, and the government comes and says, oh, you violated the Microsoft 1 consent decree. Microsoft says, we didn't say anything about bundling, and the court in the second action says, yep, that's right. We don't throw people in jail because they violated the spirit of the thing. Judges don't get to say, do what I mean, not what I say. They say it, you do it. All right, so the question then is Microsoft 3 is filed, and the question is whether Microsoft is using its power over operating systems, Windows, to control, to get, I'm sorry, to control the applications business and unfairly push people out, and in particular whether it's maintaining this monopoly over operating system by unfair methods. Because remember, you could just be a really good businessman, a really good computer scientist. That's okay. That's honest competition. But if you use unfair methods, and if you're big, they don't have to be very unfair, that's different. Okay, so there are four theories in the lower court. One of them is that in Section 1 violations, remember those are the ones that require an agreement, you can't find all the people in the business and say, deal only with me at the point where you lock up 40 and 50 and 60 percent of all the people who are in the business, that they can only deal with you. That one gets tossed out by the lower court and doesn't ever get considered on appeal in the case that you read. However, there are three theories that do go up on appeal, three grounds for why Microsoft might have done a bad thing, and they are monopolizing the operating system market, maintaining their monopoly by unfair methods, attempting to monopolize a new kind of software called browsers, and 
tying the Windows operating system to Explorer. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. Okay. Monopolizing the PC market, the story here is that Microsoft controlled the operating system and had a lot of power from that, but things like Java are coming along, middleware, and soon it won't matter what the operating system is, people will just write for Java. And if that's true, then this is bad news for the, the power that Microsoft has over Windows, Java can run on anything, and we gotta kill Java. And that's the Justice Department's story. There may be other things that you think Microsoft has done that are worse, but those aren't in the case. And so when people say, why didn't the judge break up Microsoft? It's because the Department of Justice wanted to focus on this middleware argument, which was a good lawyer's argument. It'd be interesting to hear people comment later about whether it's you know, technically a, a, a good way to think about this technology, whether Java was ever a threat to uh, operating systems. But nevertheless, it's a good way to think about, uh, you know, that's what the case was about. And you can't throw Microsoft in jail or break it up for stuff that wasn't in front of the court. The government's decision was to bring this on the issue of middleware, and that's what they did. Okay, so going back to these theories that have evolved from the courts, in order to prove monopolization, you have to prove that Microsoft had market power to begin with, that there's something like a monopolist, and that they did bad stuff. And the market share issue is what absorbs years and years of court time, but basically you want to prove that they had a big market share and people can't come in at, into the market at the drop of a hat, because if that's possible, market share means nothing. And the point that the court embraces is that, look, there's a lot of applications programs that have been written for Windows, and that means that Windows has market power. Some new operating system that comes in can't run a lot of applications programs on it. Big deal. It's not ever going to be a threat to Windows. And this is the beginning of something that economists call network effects. That the fact that there are already a lot of users for one particular standard, Microsoft standard, makes that standard powerful. And you notice that's a historical story. It could have been some other piece of software that all the applications programs were written for. But the characteristic of these markets is that they tip to one winner. And in this case, it's Windows. And Windows has this power because a lot of applications programs have been written for it. And the court pushes on that and says a couple of interesting things because the court Network effects don't occur in the physical economy that much. They occur a lot in information systems. And what is the court going to do with that? The shallow thing that the court does with it is it says, well, we know there's a lot of debate among academics and practitioners over these network effects. And maybe Section 2 monopoly theories that we developed for the old economy shouldn't work for the new economy. And maybe that's because they're so technologically dynamic. Okay, this is the ghost of Schumpeter, right? That technological dynamism makes monopoly vulnerable. Don't worry about bringing in antitrust action. They'll be gone in 10 years anyway. And another version of this is that maybe network effects offset technological dynamism. So, gee, we don't have to change the rules very much. One thing changed to, to, that would change the rules to the left, another one to the right. Let's just use the old economy rules. Uh, that'll work out fine. Okay, I'm mumbling and they're mumbling. This is not sound legal reasoning. Um, but that's not the issue about externalities. The real issue about externalities is not that they entrench monopolists or not. It's that we want them. That the fact that everybody in the world uses Word at one point in time is a reason for me to use Word. That's new. 
and I actually get real benefit from using Word instead of some other program. You know, people always come to me and say, oh, but this other pro program is better. Yes, but I'm the only person who uses it, right? That's a real benefit to me to have a program which, hey, technically maybe it's not so elegant, but everybody on the planet uses it. How do you untangle the Gordian knot that Microsoft, on the one hand, has this huge market share, and on the other hand, we all want to have the same Microsoft program? That's something that doesn't come up in classical microeconomics. I don't care whether you like apples in classical microeconomics. In the new economy, I care very much whether you like Windows. That's a fundamental problem. The court doesn't even mention it. That's a warning sign. We're going to be stumbling over that for the next 40 years. So what is this anti-competitive conduct? I think I'm going to take a shortcut at this point and just talk about one or two of these. But the first thing that the, the court is looking for things that Microsoft did wrong to keep its monopoly. And the first thing it did was it told the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, um, you can't change my desktop. And in particular, you can't change the desktop so it throws up Netscape instead of Internet Explorer. And the first thing I want to point out about this is, you know, what would happen if the OEMs did have control of the desktop? Well, now they would be able to decide whether Netscape or Internet Explorer is the one that consumers use. Because the whole point about controlling the desktop is that the user, the guy who gets the package on Christmas morning, is too lazy to, ch to choose between Internet Explorer and Netscape. So who really controls how much of these um, products get out in the world is not the consumer, which is what all of economics is based on, but which of those icons comes up on Christmas morning? You have a permanently dysfunctional market in this sense. You might move the, this power over consumers to someone who's less dangerous than Microsoft, but really you're always moving it to someone other than the consumer. You can make it a little better, but it's a real violation of what we usually think about the rules of markets. And of course, antitrust is supposed to vindicate markets. You have a fundamental problem there. Um, the other thing that Microsoft does, there are about six of them, you can look at the slides, but what it does is it bundles Inter Internet Explorer and Windows together, it takes Internet Explorer off the add and remove list, gosh, how do I get rid of this thing? Uh, it blends the files so that if you cut up uh, Internet Explorer, cut it out of the system, your operating system is impaired. And my favorite is if I choose to override choice of browser and I push all the correct buttons, nothing happens. I always thought that was my fault, but apparently, at least occasionally, it's an engineered feature. Way cool. Um, so the, the, the government alleges these things. The court finds that Microsoft did this. Um, We have several things like that, and it threatens some people, saying you better favor Internet Explorer. I hate to say this as a lawyer. They're always sublime antitrust reasoning, but the guys who try antitrust cases are also the judges who try rapists and murderers, and they understand threats real well. So if you can point out that somebody threatens somebody, all this lovely antitrust stuff suddenly becomes much more convincing to a practice. Question for Microsoft. Yeah. Are threats a problem if you're not a monopolist? See what happens is oh, microphone problems. Sorry? Microphone problems. Somebody help me. That's better now. You're good. I love it. Um, so in theory a two percent monopolist could take over the world, right? That's the calculation. Maybe with dynamite, right? I want to blow up everybody else's plant. But you know, there comes a point where we say two percent. Market share, he can make all the threats he wants. He's a lunatic. 
And in that situation, you can't do attempt to monopolize. You have to have some reasonable chance of succeeding. Okay, so I just told you a couple of stories about why they thought Microsoft was liable. Can you, remember, can you fix your microphone? It's, it has been bad for the last few minutes. Sorry? No, I want to fix this. Better? Oh. Oh, no. See, apparently if I shout, nobody has problems, but I understand that's a limited technology. Try jiggling the connector between the mic and your mic pack. So what kind of happens is um, we get to... All right, so it's a technical issue. It's Microsoft sabotage. They don't want you to sell it. problem. He'll sign an affidavit. It's not my fault. Okay. Um, so what are the defenses? Well, the first Microsoft defense is really interesting. What they say is control of the desktop. The desktop is a copyrighted object. I'm allowed to control the desktop. That's what a legal monopoly is. <laughs> the court comes back with this lovely, smooth thing that I admire as a professional. The statement that your copyright allows you to do bad things is no more correct than the, op than the proposition that one's personal property, such as a baseball bat, cannot <laughs> tort liability. And this has this lovely quality that you think they told you something. Tell me how to draw the line between copyright and antitrust, right? Um, it sounds like an answer. It's not. Somebody stayed up nights for this. I just am in awe of this unknown person. Um, and so the court makes up rules. And they say, well, what we mean is you can't change the desktop a lot. And you can't change it in a way that makes it stable and consistent. They cite no cases for these propositions. OK, danger sign. And more importantly, what's the conceptual reasoning here? And how am I going to figure it out the next time, right? This is made up stuff. Normally, it's copyrightable. I don't let you change it. That's it. They're trying. They're groping. They're reaching. Maybe we'll figure out a principled exception to make these rules work in the digital economy. 400-year-old um, problem. Cool. And then the second thing I want to point out is Microsoft has bundled Internet Explorer and, and done this wonderful thing where even when I uh, make a choice for some other browser, it's overwritten. And the court looks at Microsoft's defenses, and they insist, and they do this about eight times in the opinion, that, gee, Microsoft didn't mention any justifications. And I'm a practicing lawyer, like heck. All the, just, all the Microsoft lawyers went home and cried in their beer that they had told this stupid judge, and why are they ignoring me willfully, right? They tried to, to come up with a justification for everything, because that's what you do as a lawyer. On the other hand, maybe they weren't as clear as they would be. The next court won't get away with this. There'll be big, bold letters that say, justification for item seven, right? The court is punting. It can't solve this intellectually, but it's saying, gee, you forgot to say the magic word. What falls on the floor is mine. And what's really interesting is in the one place where the court admits, gee, Microsoft did have a technical reason, they say, well, Microsoft mentioned things that might be valid technical reasons, but the plaintiff forgot to answer them. And what this is is the judicial terror of getting into technology issues. And in particular, should browsers be unbundled? That sounds suspiciously like a technology choice. And judges know that if they're the man who ordered browsers to be forever unbundled from um, operating systems, and that's a lousy technical solution, people 500 years from now will spit on their graves. <laughs> judges don't want to touch this. But what's the alternative? If you're not willing to do it, every time a monopolist says, ah, oh, there were valid technical reasons, Your Honor, they win. 
So this is a big unresolved issue for the future. So we'll rip through some more of these slides. It's all basically the same story. There are a couple of other counts. Read the slides. I like speed lawyering. <laughs> they rewrite tying because it never made sense to begin with, this per se invention of the 1960s, and the court delights in saying, well, tying might make sense in the old economy, sniggering up their sleeves. Everybody knows it's a sick doctrine. But it surely doesn't apply to the new economy. Why is that exactly? But anyway, they get rid of that per se rule for computers. All right. So now let's get to what I said is the important thing. I will get to the important point, which is structural relief. What are the things that the court could actually do if Microsoft were liable, which after all the appeals court says it is. This is a court affirming the lower court decision. First thing that happens is that Judge Jackson calls all the, all the uh, newspapers in and says, you know how I'm going to beat that appeals court? They might want to reverse me, so I'm not going to say anything about my decision, and that'll fool them, and they won't have anything to criticize, and then therefore they'll pass my, my uh, they'll approve my findings. Uh, look, any 12-year-old knows this isn't going to work, right? If that was a good technology, appeals courts would have been flummoxed for the last hundred years. They know darn well when the lower court is doing this. This guy went off the rails. That's a problem. But more importantly, um, there's kind of a cute uh, story, which I'm just going to assert, but it's a true result from 1837 in economics, that if you have one monopolist and you split him in two, the price that the two monopolists charge, this is really awful, is actually higher than the monopoly price charged by a single monopolist. <laughs> worse if you split Microsoft into two monopolies, thank you so much. And late in the process, somebody woke up in the middle of the night and remembered that Cournot had done this work in 1837. And gosh, I never appreciated before just how awful the relief problem is. Okay. Um, so what ultimately happens, you know this, is that um, the court, the government settles with Microsoft, the states continue to sue it, and it goes to New York where another judge redoes the tainted part of the original opinion. By the way, you know, for a judge that far off the rails, you might have thrown out the whole opinion and made uh, Microsoft, you know, and made the government sue Microsoft all over again, right? That's not unreasonable for as bad as this was. People portray the, the appeals court decision as a victory for Microsoft. I don't think that, I think given how badly screwed up the, the underlying process was, you know, the government did very, very well to get what they had. Uh, but in any case, uh, what happens is they say, fine, the government sued on middleware. Tell me everything you think is middleware. We'll do relief on that, but we're not going to break up Microsoft. And it's standard antitrust law. You don't, for sort of minor infractions, do major surgery. You may not like it, but that's the way it's been for 100 years. There is an interesting question, though, in that opinion, which has to do with so-called clones. Now, the law lets you copyright uh, new material. It lets you patent new inventions. Um, and all that stuff is decided by the US Congress. But the clones issue is different. There are things which you know better than I do called applications program interfaces, which are secret. And there is commercial value in keeping those things secret. All right? Fine. Um, but those things are trade secrets. And trade secrets aren't something endowed by the US Congress as part of the whole question about balancing innovation against 
competition policy and the antitrust acts, they're there for completely different reasons. And it's not entirely clear to me why that wouldn't be something that the court could have had Microsoft disclose. Um, because Congress hasn't made any ruling that these things are particularly protectable, right? They're, it's not about copyright or patents, it's just a trade secret. And that might have been a proportionate response. What's interesting is that in Europe, they do a clone of the Microsoft case. I'll show you that in a second. But in Europe, they do a clone of the Microsoft case, and, and they say in that case, hey, APIs shouldn't be protectable, no big deal. So they do a little bit more than our judge does on basically the same facts. Okay, so you know that there's a suit in the European Union. It looks very much like the, the Microsoft suit that I just got done describing for you. One is that Microsoft uh, is using, allegedly, its power over the desktop market to capture the server market. And the second one is very familiar that it bundles its media player with its operating system. And what the Europeans do, they have a different style of antitrust, in many ways probably less well-developed, but it has a different style. And they do things that are interesting in a world where we don't know what to do by way of relief. And so the first thing that they say is, in Europe, they tend to rely on antitrust less and compulsory licensing more. And what they do is they tell people, share it. And share it at a fair price. Now, any economist faints when you say a fair price, because other than the market price, what is that, right? It's a bad way to do economic policy. On the other hand, all the choices in this business are bad. And so what they say is, open the interface. Tell the server people how they can get the same benefit from the inside of the PCs as your own Microsoft products. It's not a bad offer in a world where we don't know what to do with relief, where the inability to dream up good relief paralyzes antitrust policy. And the other thing they do is tell Microsoft to unbundle the media player. Again, not a facially stupid thing to do. Um, so let's take stock, and I'm doing pretty well on time. Um, what are the, the issues that have come up, and have we made progress on any of them? The central question is, if you really believe that, migra that, that markets are vibrant and unseat monopolists, um, should we be doing court stuff at all? And there you have the fact that, you know, this is a costly process. It takes a long time for the, the courts to come out with an answer, and by then the market may have acted already. And the kinds of relief you can get are really unsatisfactory. Breaking up big defendants doesn't happen a lot, and when it does, you can back into these, these nightmares like the Corneau problem, or you can break up a, a, an entity like IBM, which, for whatever else you have to say about the subject, they built this whole suite of technologies in the 1950s that seemed like a very efficient way to coordinate the growth of all the pieces you need to make a computer system. Do you really want to not have a big player? Um, that's the dilemma in this business. Um, there is this 400-year-old problem of balancing patents <laughs> against antitrust concerns. And in the Microsoft case, the courts say, well, you can change copyrights a little bit. As a lawyer, I think that's an unstable viewpoint because there's no principle behind it. There's no explanation. I've actually done research in this area. If somebody desperately wants to hear it, we can talk about it on the wiki. Uh, there, there, everyone who's ever been in this business and people have been publishing on drawing this line coherently for hundreds of years has a solution. So if you want to hear my crackpot solution, we can talk. Um, and finally, uh, there are new issues that the new economy brings to antitrust, and gosh, we haven't even worked out the old issues for the smokestack economy. Um, 
these are markets that are highly imperfect. Sort of the whole point of computers is to take humans out of the loop. But if you do that, then a system of markets based on individual <laughs> consumer choice is attenuated, right? If the computers get to decide more and more whether I'll use Microsoft's browser or somebody else's, that's an inherent problem. And the engineering force is to make more of those decisions automatically for consumers. There are reasons to do that, but that undermines the market model. And, you know, we don't have things that work a heck of a lot better than market models. So there's a real tension there, and I think that's quite profound. And the other one is this whole question about network effects, that in the digital economy, what you buy influences what I want to buy. That's fundamentally different from the old economics. It's fundamentally different from the smokestack economy. And the shallow problem there is that it tends to create these winner-take-all dynamics in which the most popular program becomes even more popular because everybody flocks to it. But that's kind of a sideshow. The real paradox is that we want network effects. So we want products to have large markets. And that's diametrically opposed to antitrust. Now, you can do things like open standards, and the idea of cloning is really interesting, right? Because then you get back to a place where you have multiple competitors making compatible machines. Maybe that's the way this subject grows, but right now, that's a huge unresolved tension. In fact, the courts barely understand that the punchline of network effects is really about the benefit to consumers, not about these entrenchment arguments. And finally, it's bad for people to know that you're afraid. And right now, the whole world knows that judges are afraid of being entangled in technical choices. And that guarantees that if lawyers and Microsoft and every other tech company in the world do anything in the morning, whenever there's a new business decision, they run around telling everybody, write a file memo about how this is dictated by the technology. And one of the really interesting places where you and I can talk, I think, is Computer science has a hard time coming up with objective measures when something is technically more efficient. It would be a tremendous lever for the antitrust world to have objective measures for when bundled operating systems and Internet Explorer really does run faster, smarter, harder. I suspect that's beyond everybody's state of the art, but finding places where you can actually prove to the judge that there's a technical advantage, rather than a matter of taste and dueling experts. <coughs> that would take a big load off their back. And with that, I'm going to cede to the experts, and I would like it remembered, be it remembered, that I quit on time. <laughs> experts, comments. Uh, all right, I've got a question. Um, so there's a, there's a case that was just announced in the Wall Street Journal. IBM is suing Amazon. Uh, on the basis of three patents that IBM holds, which are part of a large portfolio of patents, including, for example, buying things from electronic catalogs. So uh, in what situations is it appropriate for the court to say, look, this piece of technology is so important to the way that everybody does business that uh, it, we're, we're, we're not willing to honor that patent and, and these other companies can go ahead? And then the All second right. question... Yeah. Let's do it seriatim. I, I won't run past you. Um, so there's two theoretical issues and a practical one. The practical one is we have this suspicion, look at the patent for the computer, that courts will occasionally do rough justice. And if these really are such important patents, maybe the judge will do what, as a lawyer, makes me flinch and just do the right thing. But we know at some level that happens. <laughs> um, there is a, a, a legal answer, 
which is that a patent is a patent is a patent. And if it's a good patent, it's a patent. And they should pay up. And there's an economics answer, which I actually think is a pretty good answer, that modulo sort of fancy arguments about how stupid business people are, that they can't make deals that benefit themselves. Um, you know, all the economics of this is that people will dutifully negotiate a reasonable price that gives Amazon its monopoly profit, and that's what the patent system is supposed to do. So you would think that the market would fix this even without judicial intervention, uh, but people are balky animals, and you know maybe I don't have so much faith in theory. Second question, please. And so related to that, sort of at a higher level, you can say there's this new activity that goes on in industry, which is that people build up patent portfolios and then go out to get licensing revenue. No, that's, a, no, that's the original issue. That's the original reason to do patents, right? That's what the patent system envisaged. I, I don't have to make everything I patent. I come up with a new widget. I can get somebody else to manufacture it. What's really actually in the electronics business, the awful part of it, and this is in the background of the IBM dispute you're talking about, is that the electronics industry uses patents for mutually assured destruction. That I'm never going to enforce my patent or get much money from it. What I really want is that you don't use your patents to shut down my fab plant because I have patents to shut down your fab plant. And just as we and the Russians poured buckets of money into the ground to build these missiles that were never used, industry is pouring buckets of money in the ground to develop patents that have no purpose except to threaten. And if the businesses, instead of threatening each other, could just write a treaty, another antitrust problem, we are suspicious of these treaties, right? I mean, we're part of the problem here. But if the businesses could just disagree, they could get out of the patent business. There is a real sense, look, the original reason for having patents is to be able to sell them to people. That's what's really tough about these arguments. I think what's buried in your comment is that you believe that the patents are really trivial BS. But then as a good lawyer, I would say we should strike them down on that ground rather than, look, they're trying to hold up the industry. Hell, hold up is exactly what the patent system was designed to do. That's the lever to get paid. That's the theory. With the we should strike them down uh, comment, um, I think it was somebody from Red Hat on campus who was trying to make the argument that the price of pushing one trivial patent through the patent office, say you send 10 and only one gets through, is still much lower than the price of getting that patent validated in court. So one simple strategy is you just, if you have enough money to throw at it, get the 100 bogus patents, make sure they cover everything, and then let your competitor sue you 50 times. Uh, I don't know enough about law to know whether or not that's a reasonable argument or not. Yeah, I mean, all of this is about the transaction costs of the, of the patent system, and actually the formal arguments for this is that everybody will settle. I mean, you can get attorney's fees in a lot of this stuff. Um, the system, however, has lots of friction in it, right? But look at it this way. Look at this in a social science way. Um, everybody pays attention to the court system, but in a well-functioning system, that's not where the action is. People use the court system as the last resort. You got one, per two people in the court system suing each other. You got a hundred thousand people out there making arguments and, and signing contracts because they have the hammer of the court system, but they never use it, right? So the court system is the visible, ugly part. But where people do licenses with each other, it's all leveraged off that ugly part, but you don't see the part that's working. That's the optimistic view. Experts. Um, other question from time in too, but I want experts to get their shot. Um, 
Speak yeah. Quick question from San Diego. He's an okay. expert. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Can I see some ID? I left it at home. Um, at any rate, um, for keeping on with the patent infringement idea is, I hear, I mean, I always, I've seen a lot of cases where you have an antitrust counterclaim launched against a, a patent holder in a case. How often do, do those actually succeed? Because my impression is very rarely, but it also may be when you actually have a large corporation going to trial as a plaintiff, that case is always going to settle. Well, there's a defense called patent misuse, and you can actually invalidate patents for it. This is going back to this 400-year-old problem. So what happens in a very unprincipled way is that, well, we know that antitrust wasn't intended to overrule the patent statute, right? So patents must do something. There must be something legal I can do with a patent. And in an unimaginative way, that thing is exactly what I said to the last questioner, I can charge people for the right to use the patent. But actually, the patent system probably gave people more than that. It gave them a monopoly. And when are they using that monopoly? Unfairly, right? And this is a really difficult problem to sort out. Okay, by custom, because that's all it is. By custom, we let patent owners charge for, for the use of the technology. By custom, we let them be the only producer, a monopolist in it. Nobody else can produce it. But any deal beyond that is kind of weird. And we are very suspicious. And so one notorious example from the 20s, which I actually argue is correctly decided, is the patent owner says, you can have a license for me, but I'm going to set prices that you charge. Sounds like a Section 1 violation, right? Per se rule. But if you look through the patent statute, that's a very rational, economically efficient way to, to, um, to exercise the patent. And the United States Supreme Court, in its majesty and power in 1926, said that that was a good rule. And to this day, it has not been overruled. Came close a couple times. Look, you yeah. can make a case that that's a, a beautiful balance of, of antitrust and, and a principled balance of antitrust and, and uh, patent law balancing the reward of the patent monopoly and its effects on innovation against the drag of having monopolies in the economy. No one knows how to do that calculation explicitly. We just want to pretend that Congress got it right. But then the courts come in and say, well, some uses of patents are unfair and some aren't. It's an unholy mess. And that was created explicitly in 1623. I'd like to believe there's progress. I'd like to believe that I've solved a chunk of it, but you may not believe it. Yeah, I guess the follow-up is empirically, how often does a patent defendant actually win on an antitrust counterclaim? Well, cripes, they mostly settle, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of antitrust is based on you amassed an unfairly large patent portfolio and you used it in the sharp elbows sort of ways. So I'm not sure that, for example, it works. the other thing that happens is they both sue each other with antitrust counterclaims, right? Um, I'm not sure those lose any more often. Um, I do know that I'm a good aggressive lawyer, and if you sue me, I'll throw everything back at you. But I'm not sure, actually, that there's anything particularly suspect about that. I think they are good legal claims, or debatable legal claims. And the intuitive reason for that is that this boundary is so darn fuzzy that there really are plausible legal cases for doing this. I mean, antitrust is pretty poor on guidance. The government tries to help. They do a much better job than, say, the Europeans. But, uh, you know, it's already ill-defined in what you can and can't do. 
and the boundary between patents and, and, and antitrust are ill-defined squared. So there is a sense in which I can bring good faith claims, and they might even win, and they might even be what God thinks is the right answer, but, you know, it's a really messy area of the law, and that breeds these kind of problems. Someone else? Yeah, another question from San Diego. Um, do you think that the importance of network effects is really new to the information economy that you were talking about? Um, it seems like even in physical devices, there are issues of compatibility that might lead to a desire to, or like an impetus to standardization. And it seems like the network effect is kind of all a phenomenon that derives from that. Hey, what was the, the first fax machine good for, right? That's a headbanger. I build one, who do I call? The answer is that they sold a bunch of them to a corporation and you had a locked-in group of people who would send documents back and forth. No, it always existed. But this is like stuff that I assume is in computer science that I know is in physics. This is a mathematical simplification that made microeconomics tractable. Everybody knew that this existed, but there was no reason to chase it because most of the, the items you could ignore, they were things like, we all want to wear the, you know, the same concert logo on our T-shirt. Uh, it's clear that I want to wear this because, who's an old guy? Frank Sinatra does, right? Um, it violates this assumption, but it didn't violate it in a, in a way that professional economists really had to wrestle with the awful math of the problem. Now you can't avoid it. It's the central feature. So I don't know. Are we going to get into a discussion between the difference between quantitative and qualitative? If there is a difference, I'd say this is the information economy makes those things qualitatively different, and you certainly can't avoid them anymore. But yes, this exists in the old economy. All models are idealizations, and the, the rub here is that the new economy makes those idealizations really untenable. You can't avoid them anymore. Question from Microsoft. Yes, please. Uh, so with regards to network effects, um, they can be regarded as positive in the sense that, you know, everyone uses standardized software, you get efficiencies of scale, etc. But they're, they're also negative in the sense that you need a monopoly in order to get network effects. Um, the root cause of that problem is you can't create an exact duplicate. For example, someone entering the operating system market has to, you know, create their source code from scratch. Would the solution to this maybe be to shorten the amount of time required before, you know, closed source became open source. Sure. So there are a couple of and this would be a good topic for the wiki, actually. Um, the first question is, how do we, you know, patents are 20 years. How do we know that people wouldn't do basically everything they are now if they could only have it exclusively for five years? Uh, and in fact, the, the obvious intuition is that it can't possibly be true that 20 years is the right number for every industry in the entire American economy, right? We're all exactly the same. doesn't matter whether you make Wonder Bread or microchips. That can't possibly. That's a, that's a, a bad intuition, right? So you could adjust the length of the patent term. The other thing you can do, though, is you can make certain things unpatentable in the first instance. So question. Somebody come back to me now or on the wiki. How clever can you be about APIs, right? Um, if they're, you know, maybe there are things you can do that are clever and deserve to be rewarded in a patent sense. Your intuition is that's the trivial part. That's the cleverness is in the operating system. The APIs stick up here, but I could make them stick up there instead. No big deal. And if that's true, 
then you don't want those things to be patentable because look, let them make the Microsoft clone. If it runs slower, that's competition. If it runs faster, Microsoft will have to run faster also. Not a problem. Um, and I think that's actually the intuition in this idea. You know, the American judge recoils in horror. That would allow people to clone the operating system. Yeah, it would allow them to clone the operating system using non-patented technology, uh, non-copyrighted technology. Congress has never said, apparently, you read this opinion, that APIs are, are protectable under any of the innovation statutes. They're just a trade secret. And you could decide that until Congress gets around to making APIs protectable, politically that might happen in a heck of a hurry, um, you know, until Congress gets around to that, open up the APIs. I mean, the idea of cloned products competing is an open standard, and the, the obvious way out of this conundrum, we have things like the Intel PC that were built to an open standard, and anyone can make PCs, right? That didn't have to happen as a matter of patent law. It just happened for business reasons, to penetrate the market. IBM had to persuade you to buy the thing, and you weren't about to do it if you didn't have it second source from cheap vendors in China. So IBM would have loved to have patented the PC and extracted the full monopoly. They couldn't. They did the next best thing. They got the first mover advantage in five good years before Dell took over or whoever. So, you know, we like open standards. And if you can engineer a solution where, you know, you have open standards, then you cut through this Gordian knot of the thing we admire so much in innovation, network externalities, is the thing we hate so much in the old antitrust market share. There was a question in Berkeley. Uh, He's good. Somebody else? There's a downside to commoditization. like this. There's a, there's a downside to commoditization, which is that if you've got a bunch of companies that are fighting for every last cent of margin on a product, they're not going to have as much money to innovate. And so consumers suffer because of that. And I think we see that in the consumer PC market today. Right, but that's a judgment of what you call commoditization, I call com competitively supplied. And Congress has made a judgment that, you know, some things are protectable with a monopoly and some aren't. And my argument is, you know, fix the thing that's broke. If you believe that there are some forms of innovation that ought to be protectable, you know, the, the plumber's nightmare solution is to go fix something else. What you should do is broaden the patent laws to embrace the things that ought to be protected but aren't. That should be the first order instinct, right? Fixing the problem with A by hanging knobs on B is just as bad in law as it is in computer science. At least I assume it's bad in computer science. Question from Microsoft. Please. By the way, I'm not insulting Microsoft. I like them, honest. <laughs> <laughs> so does the law explicitly state that having a monopoly is illegal by itself? No. Yes. If you don't, if you put, if you get it honestly, if you get it through a patent, if you outcompete everybody else, if you're just ten feet tall and everybody else makes shabby products, you betcha. And it's the idea. Look, this is a criminal statute, and to, to violate a criminal statute under the American Constitution, you have to know that you're doing something bad. This is why the old laws that that threw you in jail for sleeping under bridges. You know, you can't throw people in jail for being poor. That's contrary to the American Constitution. So you have to do something. But in the 1960s, it looked like you could slice the bologna really thin. And any time the 800-pound gorilla rolled over in bed, that was an antitrust violation. Okay? And that's not true. There are a lot of sharp elbows things that even big players like Kodak can clearly do. Read the case law. 
um, that are fine. And on the other hand, it's still true that the 800-pound gorilla kind of needs to watch where he steps more than the little guys. That's, ab that's absolutely true. So, so would it be safe to say that to maintain a monopoly, you have to significantly out-compete your competitors? You couldn't just be marginal. There probably, if I went and did a legal search for you, I'd probably find other legal things to do. But basically, if you're doing things for good business reasons, okay, here's the spooky part, right? If you can claim that what you're doing, although it really shafts competitors, is the technically sweet solution, we know from this case that the court will blink, right? So there are lots of things you can do that aren't wicked, that you know you're allowed to do even if you're a monopolist and the only way to push this discussion further this is actually not a bad paper topic would be to go and look up the cases because as I say you know what you and I say about the law is sort of irrelevant it's all written in books and not too many of them you can look it up uh, but you know there is a whole raft of things that courts have found is okay even if you're big and you know that's just honest competition. Look, the, the jargon of this subject is antitrust law protects competition, not competitors. And if you honestly drive these guys to the wall for good reason, because you're technically superior or, or this is just the way everybody in the industry does business and it's all fine, that's great. The law is trying to set up competition, but if individual competitors go to the wall, well, that is competition, isn't it? So. That's a distinction judges understand. One more, otherwise we're done. One thing that kind of ties into the API argument of opening up the APIs to the market, it gets a bit scary. You can usually make a technical or business case for coming up with an API that's tightly or tightly integrated with your particular implementation, not we will document it sloppy. And in a lot of cases, that's been a yeah, and, and I mean, uh, uh, sorry, could you summarize that question? We didn't hear it well. Oh, I have the mic. So, as as I understand it, that you know, sometimes um, there is some technical justification for, for the API, or at least you can claim there's one. Um, I guess if it's sloppy enough, it's not clonable. Well, if you reveal it, presumably it's clonable. Um, That's the whole point about revealing them. But look, I, I, I want to, you know, I'm being provocative here, all right? We should have a careful discussion about APIs, and in particular, the key issue about whether they're completely arbitrary or really they're a form of innovation that ought to be rewarded. Well, the reason I, I point to them is I'm reading tea leaves, and the Europeans are making something of it, and it's one of the few places you can go with relief. So it's a provocative thought that maybe APIs are where the antitrust laws will eventually go. Don't know that, but I told you at the beginning, this is a subject that's been 400 years in the making and we're still saying the same stuff. Uh, the idea that maybe you should be allowed to make cloned operating systems is elegant in that world. Best I can do. Anyway, thank you all. See you next week.